Good day, everybody, and welcome back to Trojan Talk. Man, this is like the first time in a long time that I can recall where we have nothing but positives to discuss <laughs> from a game. I'm Ryan Young, as always, joined by my co-host Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst this season. Max, how's it going? It's going great. This will be, uh, this will be fun to kind of dive in. I'm not sure we have much precedent for this kind of win, but yeah, we'll see yeah. how it goes. This is a you, this you, is a this is a first, I guess. Uh, I mean, <laughs> let's think about that though. I guess Stanford win was awesome. Utah Stanford was awesome. Was. This one was this one was different. I don't know. I almost feel like there was no kind of trickiness to it. There was no backup quarterback. There was no third string kind of hurrah. This is just a good old fashioned ass whooping. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, just just a straightforward beatdown by a more talented team against a less talented team. The kind of stuff that USC fans have been longing for for so long. One of the main reasons why they are so frustrated with the current regime is because the Trojans haven't taken care of business like this. And now, with everyone expecting Clay Helton to be near the end at USC, what happens? They get the kind of game that they've been looking for for a couple years here. USC goes to Cal, wins 41-17 to on the road at Cal against the team that everyone would say is a good defensive Cal team and the USC offense for that reason maybe has its best day of the season I don't know Max we'll get into all the different tentacles and storylines from this game but your first reaction to what happened Saturday what stood out the most to you the thing that stood out the most to me is not Keaton's performance, which I know a lot of people were talking about because it's impressive, but I've almost become used to it a little bit. But the, the thing that stuck yeah. out to me the most was that, I guess it was probably like two minutes of, of, of football time, but that last TD in the first half and then the first TD in the second half, I know it's like for a, for a game takeaway, that's a really specific point. But to me, that was the game. I thought, I thought it, was, it was a close kind of back and forth fight. Cal had a shot kind of there in the first half and then for SC to go up 17-10 at the end of the first half and that felt like I mean if Cal was going to win this game they needed things to go their way they couldn't afford something like that they couldn't afford injuries which we saw they couldn't afford drops which we saw they had to kind of play a really clean game and that TD to end first half by Pittman kind of third and long your last hurrah there and then that opening drive TD that was, uh, that was crucial, and that was something we hadn't always seen from SC. I think they, 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 they kind of slipped up a little bit in the second quarters in, uh, in previous games. So to see that was a great sign, and to me that was the ball game. That's, that's kind of what stuck out. I wrote the same thing in my postgame column. That summarized everything, both about that game and about Keaton Slovis this night and just making the big plays. You, you want to score before the end of the half there. It's third down. He gets the 33-yard touchdown to Pittman. Coming out in the third quarter, they're facing a quick third and eight, and he finds Pittman on the slant, I think it was, for 18 yards. Then he heaves it downfield to Amon Ross St. Brown for 50 yards on the next play, and then two plays later finds Drake London in the end zone for the touchdown, and boom, 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 boom. Yeah, the deep that, ball that was clicking. All of a sudden. Yeah. Deep ball was clicking. Yeah, that was something, I mean, uh, it was funny. I had a tweet typed out in my first quarter when he missed a couple of those, Keaton, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, 2020 offseason project for Keaton Slovis, like the deep ball. Because like, to me, that's one thing he hasn't necessarily been pinpointed. There's been float throws here and there before people get on me, like 
The uh, Amon Ross St. Brown one, I think it was against Stanford. Like, that was a dime. But by and large, you see a lot of them where, like, receivers are kind of having to stop their momentum and come back, which is different than what we saw versus, like, with Matt Fink. Fink was kind of putting it on the money. But sure enough, I deleted that tweet, and he's able to, to uh, <laughs> make some big throws. They still weren't perfect throws. I think a lot of them were kind of his receivers just going up and making plays. But as Clay and, and Graham always say, there's a certain skill to that in that he's not overthrowing them. He is giving them a chance. There's something to be said about that. But uh, I thought it was funny. I literally had it typed out. said, nope, delete it. And turns out it was a big, big, uh, big night through the air. In general, it's, it's, it's very perilous with this team to form any conclusions or opinions early in the game. I can't tell you how many times on the live that we do on Trojan Talk on the message board where I've made some you know, seemingly profound opinion and, and conclusion only for the game to go the opposite way immediately after. So I've kind of learned just to – I'm just not going to say anything too, too deep here. We'll just see what happens. But, yeah, that's a fair point on Slovis. You know, even the 50-yard of St. Brown, uh, he had to kind of stop for and come back for a little bit. And, yeah, I think you make a good point there. But it's hard to find much flaw in his performance. We're going to have a long Keaton Slovis discussion. I want to hit on some more broad game stuff first, though. Let's start with Cal losing both its top running back, who yep. – Goes down when Christian Rector obliterates him in the backfield. Rector gets ejected for targeting. Uh, Clay Helton would say on the Sunday media call that once he saw it in slow motion, as much as he hated it for Rector, he understood the call. You can't leave with the crown of your helmet. Obviously, he knows that Christian wasn't trying to do that. It was such a bang-bang play, but he, he couldn't take issue with the call. So they lose their, their top running back there, and then they lose Chase Garbers, their quarterback, who just came back after a lengthy injury absence. He goes down on the hit from Drake Jackson and, and is out the rest of the game and they have to go back to, to Monster. How much did that change everything in your eyes, Max? And I mean, Before you answer, let me throw out one quote from Drake Jackson. who He said, you know, that moment you, you could tell they kind of they, they lost it. Like, it, it changed for them. And he goes, it's like when you're out in the wild and you see a wounded animal. You attack. That was, that was Drake Jackson's summarization of the Garber's injury. Yeah, no, it was huge. It was night and day. I think, one, for just a skill set, like what the offense is able to do. But then, two, kind of like you touched on, the mentality of, the, of this team. Like, imagine being a Cal player, and you go 4-0, and you're rolling to start the year. You get an SEC win. Your quarterback's playing good football. Then the injury happens. You go 0-4, and your team's not doing hot. You finally get some momentum. You uh, First drive of this game, you march all the way down and score. And you're saying, all right, we're, we're cooking. We're going to upset the, the this mighty USC team. We got our quarterback, quarterback back, and then he gets hurt again. And so how deflating that would be. And so I think, to me, I made the, the point last Thursday of this defense feels like they've been a little bit exhausted. Just the fact that for a year plus now, they've been having to play perfect football just for their, their team to have a chance to win because they can't get anything going on offense. It's been two years of this. So you finally get yeah. some uh, – some uh, some oxygen. You finally get some life a little bit with Garber's back, and then boom, he's injured again. And I thought I thought that was crushing, just from a mental standpoint, and then just simple skill wise, what that offense is able to do with Garber's in there. The word I was using last week, and I like it. it it's functional. It's a functional passing game. He's they're able to do some stuff. They're able to go through normal progressions. They're able to do just a, a functional offensive scheme versus with Monster back there. They have to try to get cute. They have to do a lot of like rollout stuff and try to. They have to try to find easy throws for him, and that's hard to do time and time again, possession and possession for an offensive coordinator. So yeah, night and day. I thought SC had a break there, and I kind of alluded it, alluded to it in the open. If, if Cal was going to win this game, 
they needed a lot of things to go their way. And, uh, and this game, didn't, uh, that, that, that surely did not uh, happen for the Cal Bears. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, though, USC fans will have no sympathy for a team dealing with injury <laughs> setbacks. Touche, so. touche. And, you know, even with that, and I, I too, acknowledge that that definitely undermined whatever Cal was hoping to do and had a major impact. Still, just as USC, for USC fans or those of us who cover the team, you had to feel good to just see it all come together for once and then just, just watch a complete game that didn't tail off or didn't start slow. It was just four quarters of good football on both sides of the ball. Cal scores in the opening possession. USC comes down, ties it right up, and then the defense allows only three points over the next basically three quarters until the middle of the fourth. So the, the defense was solid throughout. They get five sacks, two picks, and then the offense was just lighting it up. I guess – Let's just dive into the offense. Let's let's start with Keaton Slovis. And I have a lot of thoughts here. I wrote a big column Sunday. Slovis has his third 400-yard passing game in the last four weeks. He completes 29 of 35 passes, 406 yards, four touchdowns, and no picks. And I, I just don't know that you can have a much better game than that. Max, put your quarterback lens on here and tell us what you saw. Yeah, I think as an offensive coordinator, when you install plays and you put in plays on a Monday and practice them all week and you kind of have an invi- like a, a vision of how it's going to play out in the game, this game is ex- like it played out perfectly. I mean, it, every single play felt like every single play. Just as you draw it up, you go through your reads, you execute it, you play pitch and catch, and you march right down the field. And as an offensive coordinator, that's what you're thinking every week's going to be like, and it never ends up being exactly that. But, it, man, it felt like this week – it, it was it was almost perfect. I mean, 29 of 35, a few mistakes here and there, but just marching right down the field. I think Keaton, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, every week, I know we kind of say, say it every week, but I think we do need to remember, I mean, just a true freshman. Like, it's crazy the, the, the fact he's able to, to throw with this anticipation. He has a full grasp with a scheme. There's no – I mentioned with Devin Modster how Cal has to, like, find completions for him and they have to create unique ways to kind of get – get receivers open and they have to protect him with throws there is none of that with 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 Keaton Slovis he has the entire offense at at his disposal and I think it's impressive what Graham's doing they're doing all sorts of things they're doing a little bit of screen game some quick game the deep concepts the uh we saw more kind of deep posts this game we're really kind of attacking over the top and kind of airing it out which we hadn't always seen week in and week out this year then I think like Justin Wilcox said, this is the best receiving core he's ever seen in the Pac-12. Those yeah. are str- those are strong words, and I think we do need to recognize that these receivers are making it easy. They're getting his spots. They're getting open. They consistently win their man-on-man matchups, and that's the biggest uh, thing for me is Cal's defensive backs have consistently won the man-on-man matchups in previous games. They They've made it tough on all all the receiving cores in the Pac-12, and that's what's kept these Cal Bears in most games. This game, they did not do that. SC's receivers, big boyed them. They they made out. They they went out there and, and made the plays they needed to make on a consistent basis, and that was the ball game right there. If Cal was going to win this, as I mentioned, they have to had to play perfect, had to have things go their way. But that was the one thing that was different about this Cal de- defense than other defenses in the Pac-12. Is Cal had a secondary. That, that could at least maybe hang with, with SC. They were not going to necessarily be better than SC, but they could make it tough playing and play out. And uh, that's what we thought going into the game. That's what I thought going into the game. That was not the case. SC, uh, SC showed out and, 
yeah, Slovis was money, receivers were money, and uh, pieced it all together like like we kind of ex- kind of hoped this SC team could do all year. I want to keep it with Slovis for a little bit longer, but just to build off your point about Wilcox's comment about this being the best receiving core he's seen in the Pac-12 and in 20 years, I think that's what he said. Michael Pittman goes 11 for 180 and one. Uh, Drake London, six for 111 and one. Amon Ross St. Brown had a big game with a touchdown. Going back to your point about Keaton not yet being the best deep ball thrower, I thought the most telling postgame comment he had was that he's making a lot of throws now that he couldn't even attempt in high school because he didn't have the playmakers. So it just, it just really wasn't part of the offense. It wasn't something that he was uh, getting those reps on and, and refining uh, muscle memory, you know, experience as a high schooler last year. Because, again, he was on, on the team in Desert Mountain High School in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he was really the only marquee D1 prospect. And so you're, you're not taking deep shots all game and, and, and throwing up jump balls to your receivers. And it's probably the biggest area that he's had to learn through this season. So you'd expect a little, you know, learning on the fly with that here, here this year. Yeah, no, I love the point. The, right hearing you say that, the, the throw I think of is that post to Michael Pittman where the corner's in perfect position. He's right in the hip. He's trailing the whole way. I think it was like cover three, so he's kind of got outside leverage, funneling things to the inside. He's there the whole play. And technically, the, the guy's covered, and it's not like – and sometimes when we say throw it up, it kind of has a negative connotation, like he's just kind of chucking it up there and like kind of hoping and praying. But he kind of threw it up to Michael Pittman. 50 yards on the field, and it allows Michael Pittman to just go up and use his size. And to me, that's the exact play you're talking about is if that's picked, the hindsight's 20-20, could say, ah, oh, he was covered the whole way. The defensive back was there the whole time. Like one of those things, like if you don't have a big playmaker out there versus with SC's offense, with those receivers, it's nope, that's a good read. That's where you throw the ball. Like just give him a, sh- give him a shot, that type of verbiage. So I, th- I thought we saw that a bunch this game. Drake London on that uh, kind of scramble to the left-hand side, kind of throw it up late when he was buying time, like it was first quarter or so, second quarter. Um, yeah. That's a, that's another one. That's that's use, utilizing a 6'5 playmaker and saying, yeah, I mean, by the by the lay of the law, he's technically covered, but I know my guys. I know my skill set. I know my trust. Go up and give him a, give him a chance, and that's become a common theme here in uh, the past couple of weeks. So as I wrote my column Sunday, there was another column about Keaton Slovis, which seems to be a weekly thing now, but I said the – the narrative has changed. Initially, it was, man, this guy's clearly not a three-star. What a fine for USC. They got a real steal there. Then it was, well, yeah, he's a freshman, but you can definitely see down the road he's, he has so much potential. At some point, he's going to be a really great player for this team and put it all together. Now, and maybe I was I was jumping the gun a little bit, but I, I can't ignore what he's done this last month. I said, now the narrative is... The future is now. You are seeing a guy who is playing at an elite level right now as a freshman. And as much as I have been a JT Daniels backer, and I still fully believe that if he had played this year, he would have had a huge season and we'd be talking about him. But now I have a hard time seeing a scenario where you go away from Keaton Slovis and you don't give him a chance to build on this next year. It would hang over every game. If JT gets yeah. a job next year and throws a pick in the second quarter of the first game, everyone's going to be going, how could they not start Slovis? The guy was a, you know, threw for 3,000-plus yards as a freshman, this and that. 
I think it's making it very tough for whoever the coaching staff is that makes that decision. It's going to have a really hard time truly being open-minded to not not letting this kid just build off what he's doing right now. Is 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 that making too much of a leap, or how no, do you see I, this? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. Um, I do think it matters who the head coach is. I mean, if it's a new sure. coach, then 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 it's easy to say because it's not going to be on your conscience. You can just say, oh. New staff, all, all jobs are wide open, one of those things. And I think you can get away with having a, a quasi-competition, even though I don't think it would be, uh, but a, a quasi-competition into fall camp. But if it is clay somehow, which, I mean, we've talked about that before, but we have to do our due diligence and at least talk about it. Um, if it is clay, I hope that they, they be honest with, with JT, because to me, there's, there's no shot with the, with the, with the year that uh, uh, Keaton's having now and had it as, as a true freshman and then JT coming off injury, especially with all the, the off-field intangibles that Keaton has. I don't see a scenario where JT leapfrogs him, but let me be loud and clear. I still think JT is a great quarterback, just like you, Ryan. I think he has a lot of career ahead of him. Uh, That's actually not even, I think, he does have a lot of career ahead of him. He can make a big impact somewhere else, but uh, I'm with you. I I don't see an avenue where where JT is a starting quarterback unless something crazy happens, injury or something goofy like that. Yeah, I'm not even totally comfortable having this conversation because – I don't want it to be misinterpreted. Like again, I think if JT were the starter next year, I'd feel very confident with him going in there and saying, "Okay, this guy is going to put it all together." And you know, he's been itching to do this now for a year and a half since his freshman season ended, and I'd expect huge things from him. So my viewpoint on him and his potential has not changed at all. I think he could be the starter next year and be a great asset and have a huge season for USC. It's just that Keaton Slovis has made this so tough. And I still think they need to have a competition of some sort out of respect to JT. I'm just saying I, I don't know what it would take for Keaton Slovis to not be the starting quarterback to start next season. That's where I differ with you. Like, out of respect for him, I think you got to let him know as soon as, you, as soon as you know. And I know he's got, he's got, he's got health situation where you want to make sure he's finishing his rehab. You don't want to mess that up. But right. that's one thing where I push back because I think sometimes coaches hide behind the whole competition sure. word even when they know in their heart of hearts where that's going. And so I think out of respect, if you know, you got to tell them just so it doesn't drag on. And if there is a scenario where he can go get a fall camp somewhere else, and I know he'll probably have to sit out and whatnot, but I do think the uh, – the respect factor is just when you know, let him know. Because hard news is, is still going to be hard, whether you let him know in July or September or anything like that. That's one thing where uh, I'm, I'm pretty passionate on, on, that, uh, on that subject. I totally respect that. Here's the tricky thing for USC. They have no depth. 1,000%. And, and that's, where so, the whole, that's where the gamesmanship coaching gets in. I, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. The, the way this all played out this year has just been – Unideal for them because the ideal would be for JT to have to played two great seasons and then Keaton to break out later and, and you have that natural succession plan and you go from there. That would have been the ideal way for this to play out for USC. Having Keaton steal the job right now, as he as we're kind of alluding to, we think he has, makes things very tricky. You're excited you have a freshman quarterback who's playing this well, so you go with it, and, and you're, you're thankful that you recruit this guy. But you have Keaton Slovis, you have JT Daniels, you have Matt Fink. And if JT were the transfer before next season, 
as of right now, they have no quarterback committed in this 2020 class. Obviously, Bryce Young flipped to Alabama in September. They have not been able to get anybody else on board yet. There's still time, and obviously, once the coaching dust settles and, and either the status quo remains or the new staff comes in, that's going to be top priority is convincing a quarterback, look, we have a real need here. Like There is an opportunity for you to come in and be a key part of this depth chart, and they got to find somebody. Or, or you go the grad transfer route, of course. Let me ask you this, Max. You were a grad transfer. Obviously, you were looking for a chance to play. You wanted to go somewhere where, where you knew you could play. Do you think there are quality grad transfers out there who would find USC situation appealing if they knew they were coming in to be behind Keaton Slovis? I think it's a unique situation. I think the kid you'd be looking for is a guy who really values education, and you can get him into like a USC master's program kind of thing, and he can right. be a, you can convince him that he can be a USC Trojan, and then he's one hit away, and then he also gets a world-class education. So we all can envision the type of kid that is, whether that's a – whether it's like an FCS guy who's trying to make a jump kind of thing. or I mean, obviously those situations are, are unique, and I don't think you're getting a, a first-class quarterback or a, like a, a top grad transfer quarterback, but I do think you can get someone respectable who, I don't know, maybe wants to get out of a losing program and says, hey, for this last year I'll kind of take my chances and, and build for the future, but obviously that situation is, uh, is super unique. Okay, let me attack this from a different angle. And just to, just so we cover our, our basis here, do you think there's any scenario where the coaching staff is so worried about the depth chart that they try to force the issue of going back to JT because they know that Keaton is not going to transfer? You, you can make yeah. that assumption. He Again, Keaton Slovis came here with everyone telling him, why are you going there? You're not going to play. And him going – if that happens, I'm okay with that. This is where I want to go to school. But I also think I can, can, can compete and play. I don't think that he's all of a sudden lost sight of the academic and other reasons why he came to USC and why he was content to be here no matter what happens. So I don't think he's a transfer candidate regardless. Do you, as a coaching staff, get selfish and look at that and go, well, maybe we can go back to JT and – save a year of eligibility with Keaton and then re-stagger this thing. I personally don't think that that can happen, but I'm just asking if you think it's even in the ballpark of possibility. Yeah, I think the strategy element you you bring up, I think that's what you got to do. I mean, if you're a coach, you can't blame him for thinking that. I mean, the perfect example, and there's probably listeners right now kind of thinking, hey, Max, talk about it, talk about it. But this is very similar to 2016, right? I mean, 2016, you had me and Sam, and you had a true freshman, Matt Fink, and that was it. That's all the depth you had. And so as a redshirt yeah. junior, me at, at that time, if you're, the head, if you're the staff, like if I leave and transfer, which I could have done uh, at any point during that time, you take a major hit in depth. So you need both – at that time, you needed both Sam and myself at like re- ready, ready to go kind of thing because you couldn't at that time go to a true freshman Matt Fink. So you kind of drag out a competition or whatnot, and inevitably it goes to Sam – um, and the strategy point there is you have me on as the backup because you lock me in. That's the, that's the coach move. That's the, the savvy coach move. The right thing to do, like human to human, would have been, hey, Max, let's be honest with you, and then kind of uh, not have me lose a year. So it's kind of where do you net out on that? Is, is, is it the, the uh, best move for the kid or is it the best move for your yeah. program? And usually they go best move for your program. That's the business side. 
I understand at least the why behind that, but don't get it twisted. The better move for the kid is usually to uh, let him transfer elsewhere. This is a little bit different because because JT's gonna have to redshirt, he's younger, he has the injury on play, so it's a little bit different, but still a lot of similarity and it's pick one of the two. It's better for the program, better for the kid. To me, I don't see a long-term scenario where Keaton Slovis is sitting the bench for extended periods of time, just given all the momentum he's built up. And yep. uh, I think that's unfortunate for JT, that's the business, but I, like we said, I still think JT can, uh, can have a great career at a lot of schools, most schools in the country. Yeah, and I think everyone understands why you are so passionate about what we've been talking about, about the coach doing the right yep. thing for the kid and being up front. Just to put a bow on it, since, since you took it there, did you kind of spend the rest of that season feeling that that, that was why, why it played out that way and that they just had to make sure they kept you in the program that year? Yeah, I think, I think Clay wanted it to work out for me. I do, but I think in his heart of hearts, in the staff's heart of hearts, they knew that inevitably there was no way Sam was going to sit on the bench. And so I think we saw that with how they rotated quarterbacks. I think we saw that just when, when push come to shove, kind of the how, how that was navigated, which was tough for me at the time. This isn't me being bitter of it. I knew this sure. even even when uh, when I was going through it. I knew this was always a factor. I mean, as, you, as everyone could probably imagine, you walk through all the scenarios with your parents and you try to you try to navigate everything and try to protect yourself against certain things. But at the end of the day, you can't protect against everything. But yeah, that's how I, that's how I kind of kind of view it. I think Clay in his heart of hearts uh, like wanted it to work out for me, but I think he knew there was no way you were sitting 14 on the bench for extended periods of time. And as a result, if we're just calling it how it is, I lost a year of playing. As a, and I think yeah. program-wise, it, it helped SC in, in the case, in the event that Sam went down. But for my career, if we're just calling it how it is, it was, uh, it was not advantageous. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's swing it back to Slovis. Just to give you the raw numbers again, now he's missed almost two full games because he got knocked out early in the Utah game and then missed the Washington game and obviously came in halfway through the first game. So he's missed two and a half games. Still, he has passed for 2,727 yards, 24 TDs, nine picks. And I think that the people who would be critical and say he's – point out the rookie mistakes and the flaws would point to the three interception games at BYU and, and Oregon. But even with two three interception games, he still only has nine for the season. And since he came back from that concussion, he has 19 touchdowns and five picks. So it's just, it's just really hard to not be super excited about what he's doing. And we talked in many podcasts over the weeks before this recent really true breakout eruption that this was Slovis's chance to lock in the job. This was a prolonged audition for him to either get a jump on the competition next year or to make it moot. And that's just what I see that he's doing. I don't want to shove JT out the door. Again, I, I like the kid a lot, and I think he's going to have a great career whatever happens the rest of the way. I think he's going to prove himself and prove on his five-star recruiting ranking and deliver on all the hype. It's just going to be a little delayed than what people expected. So I'm not down on JT at all, but I just think Keaton is, is just taking, taking this and running with it. That's, that's the only way I can say yeah. it. No, totally. Um, yeah, your, your point about the interceptions, 
that is the one thing, obviously, this offseason. I'm sure that'll be kind of the, the, the point of emphasis is not having the interceptions come in bunches. I think that's one thing, obviously, you got to focus on. But to me, I just get back to kind of like where we were at when that hit happened to JT Daniels, and you're kind of like, oh, crap, we got to go to a true freshman quarterback. The mindset yeah. there to where we're at now like, I'll take the interceptions. I'll, I'll take a couple more. Like, I mean, I, mean, I guess we only have one more game. So, hey, he, if he throws four touchdowns and two picks next week, I mean, as long as they're not pick sixes, I think SC can survive. I don't know. But point being is that you, you, you kind of knew that was going to happen, and his production has kind of out, outdone the interceptions. I think they were cost – the BYU interceptions were the ones that you really were kind of like, ah, I wish, you, I wish you could have those back. And you say that because you know you, we've seen the good, so we know how good – the good can be and so you're almost like ah i wish he had those three throws back but uh at the end of the day like you said that stat line whatever it is 24 touchdowns nine picks for a true freshman you'll take that and that'll allow you to win some games it's, it's funny that we were talking about every week about how up and down the season was and and at one point i recall having the conversation where we said you know what he, he really hasn't progressed since that stanford debut came out of the gates hot and it's kind of plateaued and it just, I guess it was just kind of simmering there and eventually came to a boil because three 400-yard games in, in the span of four games. And again, credit the playmakers. Credit the Michael Pittmans and Amon Ross St. Browns and Tyler Vaughns and Drake Londons and the offense. There's a lot of factors working in Keaton Slovis' favor here for sure. But he's the one credit, ultimately credit Graham pulled the trigger. Graham yes. Harrell's been the one that's been in his corner since day one. And that's, that, go, that goes a long way with a young quarterback. Keaton's executing. Keaton's making a lot of these throws. Graham's scheming them up. A lot of these throws are, are clean pictures, which is advantageous. I mean, when you think about this level of performance under last year's offense, I think that would have been like, I mean, just kind of think about that. I mean, this year you kind of have air raid, so it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, but no, I think Graham deserves a lot of credit as well. Let me just add one final note on this before we move on. The other option that Daniels has, obviously, and I don't know where his academic progress is at this point, but would be to stay for this year regardless and then grad transfer and still have two years of eligibility, which is no different than transferring before the season and having to sit out somewhere. So if he's on track to be able to graduate in three years, it would make sense for him to to hang around and see what happens. Because as we saw this year, the quarterback position is volatile at every college program. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be his year. Injury struck. It turned out to be Keaton Slovis's year. Who knows what happens next season? So I, I, the more I think about it, I, I think that it would be prudent for him. And I think this is probably would be his approach. Because remember, JT Daniels was so such a USC guy. You know, so committed to being a part of this program and this history and this lineage of quarterbacks that I don't think he's going to give up on that without a fight. And so if he goes through this season and doesn't reclaim the job, doesn't get a chance, then I think that's the point where he makes the move. As we talk through this and I think out loud, I, I, I don't think it makes sense for him to transfer before this season as long as he has that grad transfer option. If he's on track to do that, and still have the two years of eligibility after this next season. Or maybe, as things play out, he ends up, the reshuffling happens again, and, and he ends up as the guy atop the depth chart, and, and he's back on the track that he expected to be on. So there, there's a lot to play out here still, 
And as I mentioned at the top, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable talking about it because I do have a lot of respect for JT Daniels as a player, as a person. And I, I, think, he's, I think he's been dealt a bad break. And I'll just keep reiterating it. I think he's going to have a great career, however it plays out, whether it's here or whether it is ultimately elsewhere. I'm a believer in his abilities and talent, and I think he's going to put it all together and maximize that in time. And I just I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse too much here out of respect for for him and and for the variables that we don't know how this is going to play out with this position in time. But anyways, that was a good debate, good discussion. Let's move on. Well, I was going to have a Graham Harrell discussion at the end, but since we're kind of on the topic, let's just do it now. As much as USC fans want change, even with USC winning four of the last five games and a chance to make it five out of six and the, the close out with some momentum, I think the fan base still wants a change at the top. They were too far down that road. That's where they are. But let me ask you this. Do you want to reset on this offense? Do you want to bring in a new offensive coordinator, a new offense, and totally go away from what is really starting to take off right now? That is a concurrent concern or issue or discussion that has to be had if we're talking about what's going to happen to Clay Helton and his future, who are they going to hire? Well, Graham Harrell has his offense kind of humming right now, and despite all the factors we've mentioned about you know great receiving core, great offense, I think you have to also give him credit, though, for the way he's developed Keaton Slovis and the way he has progressed in, in this last month. I just think it would be – be, disappointing to, to Slovis and to these playmakers and to a lot of people if Graham Harrell's not the coordinator next year. No, I'm with you. I, I, I would keep him unless, I mean, we'll see what happens in, in, in the next couple of weeks, but uh, unless a, if a new coach comes in and they have their guy and it's and maybe he's an offensive guy and a play caller, that's the one area I would not keep him, but there's a lot of things going great with this offense. I mean, you talk about, I mean, we came into the year, you had three great receivers. They're all getting love, and then they've somehow found enough catches for Drake London to put up some numbers. And you have four receivers that are great. I know people haven't necessarily been pumped on the run game at times, but I think Marquis Step is just unique in the fact that we've never seen a back like that with this air raid offense. That's always going to be something they've got to figure out and uh, hopefully gets healthy and whatnot. I think just the running, the running back room in general, having that many playmakers is always going to be tough in this scheme. But I just think it's, it's so – as a quarterback that, was, that played for SC, I, I look at the easy throws and completions SC's been able to get and, you, and that you've kind of been saying for the past decade, why can't we do that with the athletes we've had? And we finally kind of got to a point where they're getting that in 2019. So I wouldn't mix it up. I think you got a true freshman quarterback that's rolling with this offense. Uh, I would do everything I can to keep, uh, keep Graham Harrell. I think he's doing some great things. He's – I mean – He's an, uh, an up, he's a upward trajectory uh, trending offensive coordinator. If SC doesn't keep him, you better believe someone else is going to snatch him up. And that's kind of been the bar that SC fans have talked about is we should get an AD that other schools are going after because we're SC and we, should get, we, we shouldn't be settling. We should be getting the name that guys want at, at AD, at head coach, at offensive coordinator. And I think Graham Harrell kind of falls under that category of, of having the credentials to say – a XYZ school would try, be trying to get him, so we should kind of one-up him and, and keep him. So I, I would keep Graham for a lot of reasons, X's and O's, synergy, rhythm with Keaton Slovis, his uh, career trajectory, kind of his ability to adapt with everything that's been thrown at him this year. I think there's a lot of positives. 
Well, we talked about a lot of what ifs on the, on the podcast last Friday. Here's a what if. If USC had, had ended up being able to retain Cliff Kingsbury and you're in the same situation with an offense that's showing a lot of promise, yet a fan base still pushing for a head coaching change, it's very likely that Kingsbury slides in and as a top candidate to replace Helton. I don't think that Graham Harrell is going to be viewed in that way. I don't think he should. He's still so early in his career. That would be a gamble in terms of running a program. So th- this is that is not at all what I'm saying here with with wanting to keep Graham Harrell. I, I want to keep him as the offensive coordinator, and it's definitely dependent on what kind of coach you get because you're not going to lure an up and coming offensive coach who's just going to hand over the reins to a different style than what he's been coaching his whole career. That's not going to happen. So if they hire an offensive minded coach, a young up and comer, or an established dug-in vet with with the credentials, he's going to do his thing. I don't know how many defensive-minded candidates there are out there that USC will be looking at if they do indeed make a change. So it, I'm just saying it, it could end up being collateral to this change everyone wants. Yeah, This could be some costly collateral if you reset this offense and next year – the passing game is all of a sudden not turning out 400-yard games, and, and we're saying, well, wait, what happened? Just, yeah. just keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. That's all I'm saying. Totally. And I think next year if SC does lose games, I think there's always going to be the argument of we should have run the ball more or vice versa. We should have passed the ball more with the playmakers we have at each position. I think that's always in the near future – 2019, the rest of 2019 and 2020, that is always going to be a fan sentiment of, like, hindsight's 2020. Look at the athletes we have at running back. We should have run. Look at the athletes we have out wide. We should have thrown the ball. And I think Graham's done a pretty solid job of kind of maneuvering that a little bit, especially with this scheme. I just think big picture, their air raid scheme with the athletes SC's going to get year in and year out is advantageous. I think the big – Step come 2020 is getting this offensive line to be elite. I think they've been solid to good. I think that's the next step that'll take this offense uh, to the next level. Yeah. Well, we have a lot more to get to, so let's move it on down the line. Let's talk about Michael Pittman and stud as absolute stud. He has his fourth game of 150 receiving yards or more. Like I mentioned before, had 11 catches for 180 and a touchdown. And, and that's four such games this season. He's done four of those this season. He's now at 82 catches, 1,118 yards, nine touchdowns. He ranks 15th nationally in yards per game, 101.6, and tied for fifth in catches at 7.5 per game. As anyone who's listened to this podcast week after week has heard me say probably a half dozen times, I've believed all season – from before the season, that he was one of the best receivers in the country and that he deserved to be in that conversation. And at times I wondered if he would get his, his proper due based on the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of this offense. Well, he kind of got it on Monday when he was named one of the 12 semifinalists for the Belitnikoff Award. So right there, he's, he's in that final group of, of the top dozen receivers in the country where he belongs. We'll see what happens with the All-American stuff. Credit Clay Helton for, in the postgame press conference, seizing the platform and making his case for Michael Pittman. I think the question was to Pittman about his season or whatever. And, and Clay, after Michael answered, said, let me just add something and, and kind of made that case that, hey, this guy's one of the best in the country and deserves to get 
acknowledged that way. So credit for Clay for doing that. I, I think he does. Max, what I want to ask you is from a quarterback perspective, what makes Michael Pittman so incredible? And if, if you were throwing to him, what would make you uh, most excited to have him in your stable? Amongst many things, his physicality. I think so often you see big receivers that can use his physical nature when, when, when it's there a little bit. But like Michael Pittman, he is in every route. He's being physical. He fights pressure on pressure. The dig route. He forces these corners to work uh, and makes it tough. He embraces the physicality. I mean, every time he runs the ball, he is punishing the corners. There is no sense of being like soft and not saying other guys are soft, but he absolutely wears these guys down in every sense of the word. And I think that's tough as a defensive back. We've seen 6'4", 6'5", receivers across the country before, but they might be a little just kind of a speedster, just kind of a take-the-top-off-the-defense guy, take like a fade route runner and one of those things. Like you got to gear up every time you, may, you, you, uh, you face Michael Pittman. And I think we've seen in the past weeks Colorado's a game that sticks out. This, this past game's a, a game that sticks out in terms of he's running the entire route tree. They, they'll dial, dial him up on a, on a screen pass. He'll run in space, make guys miss. He'll run a slant route and be physical at the top of his cut, get open, creates leverage. He's strong with his hands. He'll run a dig route, same thing. He's uh, aggressive with his cut, gets guys, uh, gets the defensive back kind of off his spot. And then the fade balls are obviously what everyone's kind of, I mean, those are, those are the ones that have scored a bunch of points. And you forget about his speed, but uh, his physicality. And then I think just he's a good dude. And SC's had some uh, very uh, vibrant receivers in the past, whether it's Juju, whether it's Nelson. I can't necessarily speak to as much with Robert Woods. Marquise Lee was uh, uh, maybe not to Juju and Nelson's status of that, but kind of loud and vibrant guys. Uh, Michael Pittman, he's uh, he's, and and those guys work too. They they work really hard too, but Michael Pittman's just kind of nose in the dirt, let, let, let's get after it type guy. No talk, all positive, all encouragement, all encouragement, that kind of thing. And that goes a long way for a quarterback. I guess, not, and I'm not saying Juju or Nelson were, but in terms of big time receivers and prima donna it, uh, net, like that kind of realm, Michael Pittman is nowhere close to that. And that goes a long way for a quarterback and any quarterback can be fired up to throw to Pitt. He's really the ultimate team guy. He is in, in every way, but how I would answer my own question, what stands out most to me about him is just how he's elite at every level. Like, you know, it, whether it's a screen route, whether it's it's the it's the quick uh, slants and stuff, or, or, or it's downfield. Like, he's great at all of those. And I, I just don't know how many guys fit that mold. I don't know how high he goes in the draft, but I do believe this. I'm convinced he's going to be – a great pick for somebody who's going to produce at the next level. I, I just don't, I don't see how his skill set doesn't transfer. Right with you. And I think because of the way he's wired, he will fill whatever role is needed from that team. If they need a slot receiver and a more physical guy inside, boom, there he is. You need a weapon on the outside, it's just kind of a take the top off a defense type guy, boom, there is your guy. You need a red zone threat, boom, Pittman. Um, I just blocking receiver and you want more physical kind of point of the attack run game yeah. stuff, boom, there, yeah. there's your guy. I think that's what makes him so lethal is he'll fill whatever role you need. Similar to Juju, I think, right? Juju played a Juju played strictly slot receiver for the the, the Steelers his his first year. You you you, uh, 
We played cloud coverage against Antonio Brown. Sweet. Juju kind of worked the interior backers in a mismatch there. This year, you see him a lot more strictly on the outside. They move him around a little bit, but he's kind of punishing corners on the outside. That 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 realm, uh, to me, I think I, I look at Pittman in, in a similar way in terms of he'll fill the role you need at receiver, whatever that is for whatever team. And yet, for USC's purposes, you can talk about losing Michael Pittman and still being super excited about this receiving core next year because of what's coming back. We don't know what Tyler Vaughn's is going to do. He has a decision to make. And you're still, you're still pumped with the uh, receiving core even if you lose Tyler Vaughn. So you can put both those guys in there. You're like, yep, we'll be fine. <laughs> for, for real. I, 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 truly. You have Amon Ross St. Brown coming back. Uh, next year, you can just expect that he'll be fully featured as an outside receiver and a focal point and, and have a massive stat line. It's, it's just coming. He's going to have a huge season next year. Not to say he hasn't been awesome these first two years. He has. But if anyone has sacrificed maybe for the depth of the receiving core, it's probably St. Brown. You know, he, he could be a high-volume target every game. I think he will next year. But then the guy who's emerged, the Pac-12 freshman of the week, Drake London, does it again, over 100 yards receiving. He's now scored in three straight games. This is a guy who came out in week two against Stanford, had three catches, 62 yards, and then didn't catch anything for like four or five games. And he was out there. He was doing a lot of blocking stuff. He was having passes thrown his way that were going for picks. Not assigning blame. I'd have to go back and watch each one again to see who was at fault and and where, where the culpability lies. But that's just what was happening to his season. And the light bulb went on, as Clay Helton put it. He got some confidence, and it's it's such a a cliche, broad term. He got confidence, but that's what everyone said. You know, Keaton Slovis said it. Uh, Kerry Colbert said it. Clay Helton said it. Like this guy just got confidence and was able to fully unleash his very obvious raw physical abilities and believe that he could go up and, and win all these balls. And now he's doing it. Maybe one of the more unexpected storylines of the season. If you go back, and Max, you made the same point last week, but if you go back to the recruiting class, everyone was going, man, what's Brew McCoy going to do in this offense? What's Kyle Ford going to do in this offense? That was the narrative. Those two guys don't even really play this year. Ford's played a little bit on uh, special teams mostly. But Drake London has entrenched himself now as a, as a piece of this offense moving forward, and it's been really impressive. Yeah, no, I'm uh, right with you. I think the point I made earlier of like, you had three stud receivers. You were wondering how the ball was going to be distributed amongst all of them because it's we only got one ball versus that all three of them are getting fed pretty well. And then you find room to have a fourth guy get fed, and uh, he's doing a great job. I think I've touched on this multiple times in the podcast, but I thought for sure that fourth guy was going to be Valus Jones or Josh Follow in the beginning of the year. Josh Follow, we saw this game, so credit him for kind of getting some some run there. Um, so I've a little bit too, actually, but Drake London's definitely solidified himself at that position. But, but, but Ryan, here's a question for you. If Pitt leaves next year, let's say it, maybe this changes your answer, maybe it doesn't, but uh, how do you think they handle Amon Ra and Drake London come 2020? Do they keep them inside? Do they move one to the outside? If, if, yeah. how, how does that impact if Tyler Vaughn's is there? What do you think? Amon Ross St. Brown has wanted to be an outside receiver the whole time he's been here. So that's, that's why I say if anyone's made sacrifices for the receiving depth, it's him. So I think without question, he gets to go outside full-time and show what he can do there. I think Drake London is now probably entrenched as an inside receiver because it's just really shown to be an asset with his size and athleticism. 
he made the point after the game Saturday that, that he never played that role in high school. He was never inside. So he's had to learn the nuances there. But we said, well, do you like it? He goes, I like being matched up with linebackers. So I, I, there you go. I think I keep, I keep him there because you have so many other options for the outside. He's gotten comfortable there. He's progressed in that role. He's, he, like I said, he's learned the nuances of it. I leave him there. I'm on Rod to the outside. Vaughn's, if he's back, is on the outside. And then you figure out what you can get out of Brew McCoy and Kyle Ford and Manier McLean. He's probably going to miss most of the season next year with his ACL. But, you know, plenty of depth still. It's, it's going to be a really fun group. Okay, I, we could talk about Drake London for – well, actually, one last point. We, we had a whole uh, dialogue last week about how it was key for the football program to get him involved because eventually he's going to make a decision because he wants to be a pro, whether it's in football or basketball. He knows he can't do both forever. And he just felt coming out of the high school, he didn't have that answer yet. He, he didn't know what his best, best path was. So more so than just wanting to play both sports in college, it was him wanting to make sure he chose the right sport and needing more time to make that decision. So huge for the football program to get him involved in such a big way early where now he sees what he can do on the field. We asked him after the game if this has changed his plans or outlook regarding basketball. And he goes, no, not, not at all. I've still got to see what happens on the basketball court. So he wants to, to stick to the plan. He wants to see what he can do basketball-wise. And it's going to be tough for him coming in midseason after USC's bowl game is when he's going to finally start having a chance to play with the basketball team. By that point, they're going to have the rotations and everything mostly set. They're going to have to try and shoehorn them in some opportunities. I think this may be skewing heavily in the football program's favor down the road. Because it's going to be it's going to be harder for him to get the same kind of showcase and opportunity basketball wise, even if he's really talented and great there, than what he's gotten in football so far. Yeah, no, I think the one thing I would maybe alter I would not be surprised if he's at basketball practice Sunday morning uh, or Monday morning. Um, I would oh, not be surprised. He, he yeah. will. He, yeah, he he will be, but he he won't play in the game until after the bowl game. That's, yeah, that's been so, said. Yeah, so I think he'll gain a month there uh, in terms of kind of at least assimilating to the basketball team sure, a little bit. Sure. But uh, no, you're, you're spot on in terms of it's, it's heavy football favorite. I know for me in a way lesser scale, I remember myself, I was going into high school and I was equal football, basketball, like going into high school. Football happened to have first or go first in, in the season. Uh, I had a bunch of success with it. And then basketball, like you said, just kind of naturally took a back seat. Don't get me wrong. I would have had a bit way better shot making a future at, with football than basketball. But you never know. I was a, I was a good shooter. You could have kind of got win there. And uh, if basketball goes first, you might I don't know get juiced up there and not, and, and and not look back. But point being is I, I think your your point spot on there. I will say I made the Zach Banner comparison a week ago. Yeah. And it's it's a lot easier as a receiver to probably man th- this transition in terms of just body composition, what you'll need workout wise, especially because he's already big. So. There's a lot of true freshmen that the MO is, hey, we got to put weight on them. We got to get them bigger. We got to get them stronger, that kind of thing. Obviously, Drake London can do that, but I don't think it's as much of an emphasis as it might be for, say, a John Jackson the third or something like that. So I think that does play in his favor in terms of you talk about uh, January, February, March of 2019. It's not as much of an urgency to, hey, we got to bulk this guy up, and he does play receiver, so running is – is the biggest factor so that that to me is playing in his favor but yeah I, I don't I don't know the guy enough to truly know how much he, he he wants to make basketball go I know he says that I'm right with you but if he's also thinking he wants to be a pro uh we'll see but 
as a third party, I'm sure he'll play out this basketball season, see how it goes, see if he gets any run, um, and, and see if he's able to kind of manage both. But uh, everything I've heard is he's a great kid, kid that's got everything in line, and uh, if anyone can handle it, it's a guy like Drake London. Yeah, well, well, just some final perspective. I do want to move on to our last segment, but you know, when I did a big feature with him back in early summer, I talked to his high school basketball coach from Moore Park High School. His coach also works with development program for NBA players in the offseason. Their company works with a lot of NBA guys in Vegas and L.A. over the summer, and he was trying to get Drake to get out there and work out with him because he thinks that he, he's on that level in terms of his athletic ability, and he wanted to see how he matched up with some of those guys, those NBA guys training in the offseason. So he is a very real basketball prospect. It's not like a secondary thing. Like He easily could have just gone and played basketball. Tony Bennett at UVA was the first coach to really plant that seed of saying, well, we'll let you do both, because he wanted him so bad for his basketball program. And you're talking about Tony Bennett, who just won a national championship with the Cavaliers. So he is a legit prospect in that sport. And as he said, I've never just done one. I, I don't know what I can be in football. I don't know what I can be in basketball. I've always balanced. I've never been year-round either way. And so it's going to be a really tough call for him at some point. But I'm sure we'll have more talks about Drake in the future. Let's move on real fast. I want to get to Clay Helton, but we haven't talked about the defense at all. Max, were there, were there any takeaways on the defensive side that you want to highlight or that, that stood out to you? Um, I think, I mean, they won the turnover battle. So, I, I mean, that's... That's always a great sign. You're forcing some things, forcing some things there. But I thought that that performance is kind of what what, what you expected. I mean, struggle. Cal struggled in the passing game. That's what SG should do. Uh, Cal got some running yards, over 100 yards for sure. But when you're running every play, that's almost like a given. I thought it was a strong performance. Brandon Peely was in there a little bit more than I thought, kind of in weeks past. John Houston, another good performance. We've kind of talked about his name in coming in, in consecutive weeks. Uh, so I think he's coming on. I'm trying to think other guys. Uh, overall, I thought it was a uh, pretty pretty strong pretty strong performance. Excuse me. Yeah, I'll give some kudos to Gray Johnson, who's a guy that I've been critical of. You know, just objectively critical of, not like down on the guy. Just thought he was up and down for most of the season. I think he's really kind of solidified in recent weeks. He has a pick. He has a big tackle on third down. I think he's he's playing much steadier down the stretch here. Um, but yeah, let's let's turn to what everyone wants to talk about. Obviously. The storyline with USC football remains Clay Helton and what's going to happen or not happen a week from now. As I mentioned, USC has now won four of its last five games, has a chance to win five out of six to close the season. But the the one loss in that stretch is going to be the one that hangs over everything. It, it was a, a non-competitive blowout loss in the most important game in the second half of the schedule. If you're Mike Bone... Obviously, you came in with some preconceived ideas as a new athletic director. You're evaluating this final stretch. Does anything sway you down the stretch here if USC closes out with a win against UCLA and finishes with five wins in its final six games? No, I don't think so. The only thing that would maybe sway me is if Utah loses in these remaining two weeks and SC is somehow able to back their door, back their way into a conference championship and then win and then go on to the Rose Bowl. That's the only thing. I think to me, to me, a lot of it is, I mean, just the fact that like this whole coaching, head coaching deal has been like talked into existence. I think SC fans have been quick triggered to kind of jump ship 
for, for a while. And I think that the counter data is like, no, we haven't. Have you, have you seen how long we've been on this? Yeah, but I've also seen the tweets where people were calling for Clay to get fired like 2016, like game three. So I was like, all right, come on now. So I think this whole thing's kind of been talked, to, talked into existence. I can't imagine another offseason where you're kind of having to sell to the fan base. The one thing I'm still kind of scratching my head over is just the, the dollar amount. If you go and if your mindset of Mike Bone is I have to go get a huge name, what is that dollar amount? And to kind of make the fan base happy and with all the other funds needed or places where funds are needed in this university right now, do they have the money? And I know that's kind of a crazy question at SC because you always kind of think it, but I am still kind of curious because it's a lot of dough we're talking. That's the one thing uh, one thing I see, but we, I, I said it back in week three, Ryan. I remember saying that I, I don't think there's a scenario where Clay gets fired in season. I just don't think that was something that the administration wanted to deal with. They had done that before with Kiffin. They had done that before with Sark. You saw the byproduct of what, kind of what that led to is you gave um, filling coaches the, the shot to prove themselves, and then, it, and then it just created even more controversy. So I did. I thought that was something the, the administration just did not want to handle. And so I would not be surprised if this Monday or this Sunday, whatever it is, they kind of announce the, the plans to move forward. And out of respect for Clay, they let him play it out. But uh, I think that's that's where this program is now, where SC is not down in the dumps. They are a good football team. They're just not an elite football team. Well said. And as I wrote my column after the game, the fact that this dominant four-quarter performance against Cal was such an outlier kind of reinforces the point. Like, yeah, that they, they just did it. Like, it was a great performance. But everyone's – it reinforces that the talent's been there and that that potential's been there and that this team has just been inconsistent and unable to reach its maximum gear most weeks for the last two years. So it doesn't change anything for me. It just underscores the – disconnect between what has been and what we have always thought was the potential and kind of what we saw Saturday, a game like that, putting away opponents. I was yeah. with you all along. It never made yeah. sense to make a move in season. You only do that if you are in a dire situation where inaction has a truly tangible negative impact as it like at Arkansas where things have just gone off a cliff there with Chad Morris and they're getting beat by uh, Western Kentucky, uh, blown out by Western Kentucky, or for the state, where just the even more so than we have here, the entire fan base had just moved off of Willie Taggart and was pushing for change. So Clay Helton has been a a fine representative of the program, of the university, out of respect for him. He was always going to get this full season. I still am in the same place, and the interesting thing is that. If the move is made next week, and they have their banquet this Sunday, so I, I think it would not be Sunday. I think Monday. Which is today. super weird. Like that, I was always like, uh, I know it's different. I get the logic behind it, but that caught me off guard for sure. Yeah, well, it's it's been a major source of um, speculation and and hypotheses that they moved it up to the to the Sunday after the season. Uh, Clay was asked about it Sunday, and he goes, "Well, it's just you know." A lot of our parents come in for that game, and we can't always get the families to the banquet, so it, it makes sense for them. And 
Uh, then we turned the recruiting, and you don't want to think of the day off the road recruiting-wise, so it made sense time-wise. Those are all fine points, but I think also everyone's going to presume that the move was made with the anticipation of another move being made. And if that happens, if a change is made, if Mike Bone ends the Clay Helton era, the irony is that it will not be because of this season. It will be because of last season. And just the how much that has hovered over this program like a dark cloud, how much they have not been able to escape it on the recruiting trail. Again, if they had this season last year, they are not in the 70s nationally in recruiting. They are not 11th in the Pac-12 in recruiting. They have not been able to overcome that. And as I've said all along, there was a path for Helton to extend his tenure. The only way to do it was to come out and have a dominant bounce-back season where you erase any doubts. You get the recruits on board early this fall. You start 6-0, 7-0, whatever, and, and the recruits are like, okay, USC is back, and you're back in the recruiting game. That was the way for him to extend things. He's been fighting not against the opponents on this schedule, but against last season still. And ultimately last season I think is, is still what's going to do him in when that time comes. And I just don't think that Mike Bone took this job to maintain the status quo. I, why yeah. would you want to come in as a new athletic director when the fan base is so vociferously in unison for change and against this regime? Why would you want to come in and be the guy that extends that and, and, and your first move is inaction? I just have to think that he, thir- like USC, thoroughly vetted Mike Bone. I'm sure he thoroughly vetted this job and what he was walking into, and had to know what he was going to do coming in. That's why I don't think these last games ever mattered once the Pac-12 title was out of reach. That's just the way I see it. Maybe I'll be proved wrong. Okay, I, I don't know. Wacky things happen. We'll find out next week. But my personal opinion, and sounds like your opinion, is that there really wasn't anything to sway once we got to this final stretch of the schedule. Yeah, I, the, I, I point back to th- two things. I think JT Daniels' knee injury and then that BYU game. I mean, if, yeah, you, don't, if yeah. you do not lose BYU and you start that season 4-2 and two instead of 3-3 three and three, and you're right now sitting at, what is it, 8-3 and three instead of 7-4, and four, and then ideally you would finish 9 and like under the, the other scenario and not losing to BYU, let's say you go take care of business against UCLA and you finish the season 9-3 and three, potentially 10 and three with a bowl game win with a true freshman quarterback that you had to play with the entire year that to me is pretty impressive that's doubling your wins that to me it's kind of like think about that for a sec that's no i have (laughs) yeah no yeah i was more so talking about uh the the listeners (laughs) um but uh yeah i mean if you think about that that's an interception in overtime against byu could have like honestly like been been the difference and it's kind of yeah, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. But I, I I do do think last year was obviously a big one. But even then again, you're playing with a true freshman quarterback last year. Five and seven is never acceptable at SC. But I think there was an element where you kind of expected a huge step back when you're going away from Darnold. Then you're taking a senior in high school and leading your program. So I think if you're in the Clay Helton camp at all, there's definitely a world where you uh, can spin this in a certain direction to. Uh, Maybe get Clay another head job somewhere else uh, four or five years from now. But at the end of the day, I think uh, out of respect, they wanted him to finish out the year. I, I do like the point I made earlier where it's SC's a good football team. They're not like totally in the dumps like, I mean, a Texas was a few years ago. Like that, Texas was not a good football team for that stretch before they got Tom Herman. 
you can probably make similar comparisons about other teams around the country before they kind of make their jump. SC is going to has a super bright future, as everyone knows. But I just think it wasn't enough in a lot of unfortunate circumstances. But uh, it wasn't enough to for Clay to keep his job no matter what happens down the road. Yeah, it's to me, it's really not about this season in the grand scheme of things. I think you could make a case for eight wins plus nine in the bowl game with all the injuries, all the setbacks, but the margin for error was already gone. Uh, so you would have had to have that, that equity and that margin for error and use it this season. It was all used up last year, and there was a razor-thin margin for error for him this season to show that everything is back on track, and things worked against him. The injuries worked against him for sure. He, he can definitely have what-ifs. Uh, as much as people you know, hate on Clay and don't want to consider – the contributing factors, you know, things not fall his way. And that maybe it could have been different. That BYU game, if you're sitting here at, at nine wins after this week, going to a bowl game, ten wins, it's, it's hard to make a move at that point. But that's not where we're at. We're here. And I just think this university is doing the total reset. Carol Fult, Mike Bone, I just think it falls in line. And that's what that's we'll see. That's a good point. That- I like that last point. University's doing a reset. I, I think yeah. new, new decade next year, 2020, kind of we're going to look back at the 2010s as the dec- like the sanctions decade for SC and all the impacts yep. that happened for there, and that's going to be like the down decade for SC. And like you said, a university change that's bigger than football. It's, it, academics plays a role. It's the culture of what the USC logo stands for and that brand. And I think it starts the athletic program. It's going to trickle to the rest of the campus. But if, it, it feels like – I love that point by you. It feels like that's kind of where this entire campus is at, is it's a university reset come 2020 to attack a new decade. Yep, and we've got to go, but I'll, I'll just put a bow on that one final point. Again, move off the field and look at the other factors that are ultimately going to be the biggest contributors here. Mike Bowen is in all of his public outings so far, emphasized recruiting and – like we said, USC is 11th out of 12 Pac-12 teams right now in the 70s nationally, you know, ranked down with the Western Michigans of the world. And then he's talked about an intensity of interest. That's been his buzzword, intensity of interest. And people are excited for Carol Fult. People are excited for Mike Bone and giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know, fresh guy coming in with some experience. People are not excited for this football program. And I say that because you see it in the stands. You see it in the empty seats in the Coliseum. You see it in the revenue loss that this university has surely incurred because of that. I think those are the factors that will loom the largest here when the final verdict is levied. But we can discuss that plenty more. We're back with you on Friday, previewing the finale with UCLA and other fun topics. Max, great podcast. We have been hitting our stride, too, just like the <laughs> football team these last few weeks. That was, that was a great show. Love it. Thanks, Ryan. Good, had fun. All right.